for each project has different amounts of risks and the protections depend on the amount of risk. Are we doing this? How clear are you at the point of agreement? It's happening now? Yeah. The things that got you into trouble should be the clauses in your contract that structure how you introduce your services to your customer and what they are agreeing to. Don't use anything that's that can be up for interpretation at the yeah. end. And if you do leave it up for interpretation, make sure it states that you're going to document it and that you do have documentation. Underground rap at its realist. Hey, John. The Diojo podcast, we are helping contractors shorten their dang learning curve. Mindset change. I find litigation scenarios intriguing um, because I think that's, for many of us, the worst case scenario if a, a project has to go down that avenue. So last episode of the Diojo podcast, uh, episode 95, we talked about two different litigation scenarios. One is this one, uh, RJC versus AISD, that we've been kind of diving into deeper the start of that conversation with Bebo Crane. And um, the second last week was a contractor in the town that I live in, in a small town in Washington, suing the city using their own contract language, having the data to present that to them and being able to win in court, uh, defend themselves. The customer comes to the contractor with the defect issue, defective issue. Upon 15 days written notice, the contractor had to remedy the work to the satisfaction of the city. Written notice, it has to be in writing, the written notice stipulating, hey, you've done these things wrong, we want you to fix them. Contractor says, we address those things, called for a follow-up meeting and walkthrough with the customer. We have documented all the attempts to meet with the client. The client refused used on this date, this date, this date, did not respond to our emails, did not respond to our calls because we understand the language of the contract, because we did the right thing, followed through with the remedial action and documented our processes. Now the court says this is no longer a default issue. This is not termination for cause because the contractor addressed that. You refused to meet with them, do the punch list, walk through and confirm. The language of this contract was uh, dictated by the city. You know, often is the case in government work. I got to tell you, it is refreshing to hear a contractor who understands the contract, the agreement. Um, sounds like they did the right thing and was able to use the contract in their favor to say, look, this is what's right. And you, customer, even the city, uh, the local municipality, you need to do what's right, and the courts agreeing. You know that's that's uh, very encouraging, um, as opposed to the case what we're looking at, where there seems to be some some misses on all sides. Definitely with the relationship to setting up the clear terms of the agreement, uh, and then some holes in what the contractor. Um, provided or did to support the work that they did and then some of what it appears you know um, the levers the uh, school district was able to pull to protect themselves when it went to litigation so the contractors should therefore carefully read their agreements especially when the agreement is drafted by the other party to the contract and understand all of its terms before signing then if the dispute arises the contractor can use the plain language of the contract to argue in support of its position in the dispute the contractor did what they were contractually obligated to in the event of being made aware of a default and then sued using the language 
of the customer's contract to support, hey, we did what we agreed to. Here's the proof. Here's the documentation. Great time, the new year, 2023, to kind of reassess, you know, what are our processes that have gotten us into trouble what are some of the lessons that we had to learn from that uh, are now changing the way that we do business, making sure that the people on our team are um, understand where those lessons have come from and why we do the things that we do. So this episode's going to dive into that. We're going to get back onto that particular conversation with Robert Jordan Construction versus the Arlington Independent School District. And today's episode will be focusing on documentation and more of the water damage side uh, from what we've pulled out of that story. What we're talking about today, which I think is so important. You are hearing the voice of Whitney Wiseman out of Palm Beach, Florida. Do your job, do your documentation, be transparent, and be a stand-up contractor. And if you do those things, you shouldn't end up in a situation like Homeboy did out in Texas. We want to shorten our dang learning curve, but there's no replacing it. Reach outside of social media, find individuals who excel in their space and make sure that you learn as much as you possibly can from these individuals who are not trying to make money off of you and truly want to be your mentors. Because I see more mentors in our industry right now that want to make money off of everybody who's green than I do any individuals who are just willing to help. And to me, that's sad because I came up in this industry where there were people who would answer their phone, give me the advice that I need, and it was free. But right now, it's it's a weird world. There's a lot of people, though, that can really help you to be the best in the industry. Reach inside the industry for those people when it comes to contracts, when it comes to business, when it comes to all these other things. Get as far outside of this industry's mindset as you can and start attacking it as a professional. Like, for instance, we are a specialized trade in the construction industry. Yeah. We all should act like contractors. Yes. And we should be professional in our state as our state regulates us too. And we should utilize everything that is in our power in order to protect ourselves from a customer screwing us over. And at no point in time should we use these shortcuts in order to gain success because I can guarantee every single person the long road is worth it every yeah. single time versus the shortcuts and learn from my mistakes. Thank you, Whitney Wiseman, for giving your input on how contractors can shorten, not shortcut, their dang learning curve. Hi, everybody out there, JoJo Nation. It's infotainment. Are you not entertained? We will entertain you whilst we also inform you. What you're doing is terrific. Every day is a fight. The DoJo Podcast. Don't get it twisted. We should be listening to you. It all crept up. The inventor, the DoJo Podcast. Did you, did you watch anything? The one I did on the contractor down in Texas that's getting sued? I caught bits and pieces. If you've been listening, you're familiar with this audio. I believe the AISD and its board could be trusted. So my company's willing to action. Perhaps you've heard about this case. We did the job. We were hired to do. Uh, it hurts to hear it, right? We did the job we were hired to do. Now the ASP is saying, screw you, we don't owe you a penny because we are the government. We hear it all the time, uh, contractors having trouble getting paid, and one of the ways internally or that uh, a contractor or organization can do it to themselves is with a lack of documentation, which can be 
inconsistent training or a lack of follow-through or QC when it comes to making sure that the team members are getting the data that's relevant to the billing process. An Arlington construction company says it worked around the clock last February to clean up a flooded school. Months later, it says it has yet to be paid. So in this segment, we're talking to Josh Winton, IAQ Josh, who has a good video on YouTube that does an overview of what it looks like to do a solid moisture mapping for a larger scale project. Not only do we collect the objective data, which is going to be our actual moisture reading, whether it's 27%, whether it's 57%, you should be using something that is not only easy for your team to be working with and properly documenting, but also think of your clients, right? And not only thinking of your clients, but thinking of the insurance adjusters that are involved. Maybe there's a property manager involved. I can't think of an easier way to tell everyone what is going on and what the project status is than by giving them this beautiful floor plan, which of course is representative of the property that you're working in, and saying, hey, here's our wettest areas, the red areas. Here's our driest areas, the green areas. Everything in between is getting closer and closer to what we refer to as the dry standard. We set drying goals at the beginning of the project. We're only showing clips of this video, but you can go to the IAQ Josh YouTube page. It's in the live video section. It's Moisture Mapping 101. The ASD says, uh, you know, they would pay more. They need more documentation. And it appears they asked for that early on. One of the news clips is like, it's asked for documentation that RJ says doesn't exist. Doesn't exist doesn't exist. Uh-oh. I think I told you I'm going to probably incorporate some of your moisture mapping video. In order to know if you are actually drying, you need to know what your environmental conditions are. You need to know what your moisture concentration levels are. These are things that we monitor daily. These are things that we monitor daily. 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 These are things that the insurance adjuster is going to want you to provide at the end if you want to get paid. So do yourself your due diligence and make sure that you've got some level of competent documentation. Competent documentation. Competent documentation. You know what? I got an idea for you. Instead of being an idiot every day, why don't you go back to school? We want to give a huge shout out to the sponsors of the Diojo podcast. Those organizations also committed helping you shorten your dang learning curve. First off is the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. You know them industry-wide, S-C-I-I-C-R-C. You want full access to all IICRC standards from any device, at any time, and in any place? Get a standard subscription for about 50 cents a day. Visit IICRC.org today. Also, Advocate Claim Service, LLC was founded to provide policyholders, brokers, and attorneys with a dedicated claim professional to develop a comprehensive claim presentation strategy. Can I talk to David Princeton? You got him. While ACS does not sell insurance, they make it work. If I wanna take the anxiety out of my claim, who should I call? Advocate Claim Service. Advocate Claim ACS's principal consultant, David Princeton, a friend of the show, has resolved disputed claims resulting in tremendous results. 
and also contributes to CNR Magazine's column, Dear David. We're also sponsored by book number four from John Isaacson. The suck less at estimating. It's for better project outcomes. <laughs> Available now as a bestseller through Amazon. David, we, we, we've got a problem over here. To the Diojo podcast, iz at thediojo.com if you're interested in sponsoring or advertising on this show. <laughs> I don't know David. what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? The Diojo podcast. podcast. I'd like to be clear. I mean, this is something we face every day as business owners, business managers, even as technicians. Um, the court is often um, a, an imperfect mechanism at best for brokering peace. So anything that can be done between the client and the contractor to um, come to a better understanding is, is golden. And the majority of that starts with how you kick the relationship off. You know, how clear are you at the point of agreement? This is what we're doing. This is what we're obligated to. This is what you're obligated to. That's why it's so important, I think, every year to really review your contracts. Bebo brought up a good point last episode. The things that got you into trouble should be the clauses in your contract that structure the way both how you introduce your services to your customer and what they are agreeing to. Something that we'll be talking about in another case coming up is um, those clauses that swing to your favor, those need to be pointed out. They can't be hidden or in the fine print. They need to be something that you discuss. You've got to adapt your uh, situation. You know, your, for each project has different amounts of risks and the protections depend on the amount of risk. I recommend getting a lawyer that is, would work with you, sit down with you maybe like this, and you could write out your things that you have done wrong <laughs> and those are your risks and yeah. basically list those out. And as they come, you know, that contract can be an evolving contract as you obtain more situations that you feel you're about to be entering risky and learn how to hedge that risk with your contract and your disclosures that you make. There's a great statement that was made in the court documents by the representation for the Arlington independent school district. And they basically say the, um, plaintiff or they say the rj construction confuses their own conclusions for facts so the facts are what the facts are obviously in two differing opinions about the narrative there's differences in the conclusions that they draw from those facts but the facts should be the facts and one of their lawyers um, talks about a quote from Abraham Lincoln. He says, how many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? And their answer is four, saying that its tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. So obviously it'd be wonderful if things were that simple in disputes between people um, and, and when things go to court. I included this. Uh, the article is called Resolving Disputes, Conclusions Aren't Facts in an article that was published um, online with Clean Facts. So if you'd like to read more about that, it's out there. Support um, the publications that are supporting our industry and providing good information. So let's get into the AISD's claim. Uh, just because 
RJC presented a proposal does not mean that we agreed to it or that there was a contract. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk more about that next week so uh, or next episode, so please tune in and, and hold on to that, uh, that initial anger from that statement. So they're obviously saying, you know, it was never properly executed because it didn't go to the proper authorities. Um, there wasn't mutual assent or a meeting of the minds because they never agreed to the deposit. They never agreed to the final payment. You know, they agreed to let them bring their equipment on site, you know. Okay, so we arrive on site. <laughs> One of the first things we need to clarify, and that's part of this conversation with Bebo and something we're going to get into greater detail in the next episode is what is the agreement? What locks the agreement in? Are we on the same page with the client? Hey, these are the services that we're going to provide. This is our plan of attack. And this is how often we're going to follow up with you. You know, if there's a lot of parties involved, maybe initially it's every day, but as we get the plan further and further out, maybe it's every couple of days or every week to where everybody's updating and coming together to to confirm the plan is working like asd said all we agreed to was yeah sure you can come dry our air and yeah uh, (laughs) and sure you can put whatever number you want on it what's weird it sounded like that was that wasn't their equipment it was put there by our rental company they may not have even dried the air that other company may have actually dried the air and they just moved it around if there was no readings yeah there maybe it was already dry by the time they got there um but that in a in a water damage scenario, this is a larger commercial loss. The same principles apply to daily residential losses, but we want to get we're gonna need to map it out in some fashion, whether that's just in our heads. Usually typically better to do that on some piece of paper or in a computer program where we're gonna identify here's the source of the loss. And then we're going to track the extent of the loss. So to expedite that, maybe we're using our infrared cameras to kind of show us where the temper differentials are so we can dial those in with our moisture readings. Maybe we got remote moisture readings. we got localized moisture readings, combination of both. But at some form, we've mapped out this is the work area. This is the source and the area uh, most greatly damaged. This is how far the extent the damages went. So that way, when we come to the client, hey, we actually need triple the equipment that we thought. Why is that? Well, when we did the moisture mapping, we actually found it's much further than we thought. Or these and these materials are going to need this specialized equipment. Or if we bring this in, we can cut the drying time from X number of days to these many days. So part of that, I understand there's some contractors that make a business decision not to share their moisture readings or daily readings. But I can't, I I guess I don't see a scenario where you wouldn't at least be tracking them internally to make sure this is our plan, this is our dry standard, what we believe we can get this material to in this environment to where we believe our work is complete. These are our goals. It also helps you to be able to say, wait a minute, why is this not drier than it was yesterday? Is there something wrong with the power or equipment? Is someone leaving the door open? Those kinds of things. So we've got our our moisture map, we've got our dry standard, we've got our drying goals, and then we've got our daily tracking. Those things help us to know internally whether we've done what we set out to do. And if we have those meetings with the clients, can show them this is our progress, this is why this area is taking a little longer, this is why, hey, we were able to kick butt in this area. So if we replicate that, it may cost a little extra in equipment, but we're going to cut down in days. 
And then when the insurance company gets involved, which we'll discuss briefly, there was a third party involved, Engel Martin, I believe, but that was um, after the invoice was submitted, even though it appears the customer asked for greater details early on in the process. I think in that one video, it showed metal studs after demo. Yeah, we got metal studs. So we're not drying any structure. You know, here, I don't know if you can see this. You got brick wall over here, metal studs. You got drywall on the other side and more metal studs. So they obviously yeah. ripped up the flooring, looks like carpet or something. So having agreement, a clear understanding with the customer, this is what we plan to do. This is how we're attacking it. This is what we believe the price is going to be. And then we're updating that as we go. And then internally tracking that we're doing the job that we said we were going to do. And having that in a package that should this go to court, the worst case scenario happens our our details, our documentation is dialed into the point where you know we're ready to go. You know we we don't want that to happen, but we're we're prepared for that event to take place. Have you gone through that process of working with a TPC after you've dried like a large structure? And oh man, it's like you know you've got your three ring binder of documents, you know, from all your dry logs and every day and every guy that's checked in. Um, I don't know if it's the same where you are, but in Oregon, oftentimes, I think it's if over 50,000 per building, then it goes prevailing wage. So you have to pay them Davis-Bacon rates. Uh, and then, so it's always making sure you have the right rate category. So everybody signs in, you know, so you calculate those hours, you got your agreed rates on equipment and, um, and then your readings every day per room cycling equipment through, you know, any rentals and those kinds of things. These are things that we monitor daily. Daily, daily. If you're drying, what are you drying? And how are you tracking that it's, it's being um, effective, right? I think there should be some level of that would be um, standard. I mean, it's really is, it's, it's simpler than most things. Uh, yeah. If you actually just use, don't use anything that's, that can be up for interpretation at the yeah. end right and if you do leave it up for interpretation make sure it states that it's uh that you're going to document it and that you do have documentation well and i i think like you brought up earlier you know um you said you're even doing that on smaller things like mold remediation so it's like hey for the next three days or maybe the next five days we know our burn rate uh they had it for their equipment and stuff like that yeah uh, I kind of wonder, I don't know if that would have worked if, if, if Horn had the authority to approve up to 50K. I, I, I know I would have gotten 50K as soon as possible, right? And then right. just shy of, and then, hey, can we, can we do work in $50,000 segments up to whatever point? And then let us know. And obviously, before you start dispatching people from other states or whatnot, I think you'd want to make sure you have a pretty darn solid agreement. Um, yeah. Well, that first 50K would let you know before you get too, too far into it that it would test the waters. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For those payments. Excited to announce that our best selling book, How to Suck Less at Estimating Habits for Better Project Outcomes by John Isaacson, The Intentional Restorer, is now available. This is a full color, it's got diagrams. This book is also a course available online through our friends at Restoration Technical Institute, rtilearning.com. 
This course has six modules, which reflect the six chapters in this book. If you sign up for the course, you get a free PDF copy that is designed to correspond with the course. How to suck less at estimating. This book is available on Amazon. It's true. Some people ask why I do the podcast. Uh, I, honestly, I ask myself that weekly. Um, but one of the reasons is getting to talk to great people. We've talked to Bebo, we've talked to Josh, we've talked to Whitney Wiseman um, in this episode. But you're about to talk to, uh, without fluffing too much air, but it's really, I don't think you could fluff enough because uh, Cliff Slotnick is one of the key people that has been there um, working oftentimes behind the scenes to help uh, elevate the industry um, and we are fortunate to still have him active and engaged in the industry so I would encourage you to listen carefully to what he is trying to share with you uh, because you're you're listening to someone that was there on the front lines um, as the industry was being birthed uh, and he for so he has stories about what he's contributed as well as some of the people that are no longer with us that really made uh, our industry what it is today so this is cliff zotnick you can also hear him every friday on iaq radio plus uh, the OGs of, of restoration podcasting, they were podcasting before there was even podcasting on internet radio. Uh, and you can also, Cliff will be with us uh, in January for the uh, Andrew Ask Building Science Symposium and then the one-day workshop, the lessons learned from storm response and hurricane recovery that Pete Consigli and I are putting together uh, so you can be in person with uh, a lot of these characters. And this is in the 2000s. I probably already had 20 some years uh, of experience doing water damage restoration. You know, what I'm going to show you had happened completely accidentally. And I don't think, you know, none of us in water damage restoration had the opportunity to see the air and to see what the air does, uh, what the air doesn't do. Are you able to see where my cursor is, the mouse? Yes, yes. So this this is the centrifugal air mover, right, that basically Lloyd pulled out of the HVAC system and turned into the modern air dryer. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a centrifugal blower. His portage dryer was a uh, centrifugal blower. But the yeah. thing is, you know, he figured out how to put a snout on it that would go underneath carpet. He kind of yeah. raised it up and... Yeah, yeah there's there, there's some engineering there for sure. Well, just like I think I could use that for something. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's important if we're going to talk about uh, water damage restoration, uh, we have to give a nod to um, those who have formed and helped build the industry to what it is. Here's a short promo video we did for uh, something we're working on on a larger piece on Lloyd Weaver. Another historical figure, Lloyd Weaver. Uh, Lloyd introduced the first specialty design porta dryer for on-location wet carpet drying. I worked for years 
getting the pressures correct on his carpet fan. While that might not seem like much in today's sophisticated world, 35 years ago, this was written in 2007, Founding Fathers of Restoration. And then someone will ask him, how do you know when you have enough? He says, when you blow a fuse, you, <laughs> you take one out. Lloyd's methodology challenged the rug cleaning establishment and its in-plant wet carpet service. Lloyd also infuriated the fire restoration establishment as he encouraged carpet cleaners to diversify. Property restoration. RestorationHistory.com. Okay, so, I mean, at, at that time, uh, people, they were going crazy with top-down drawing. And what we would do with students is, you know, they'd heard about top-down drawing, and they also heard, heard about something called the vortex. You know, how's the air is going to kind of go yeah. in a vortex. In a circle. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I suspect it oh. might if the room was round. Okay. Okay. But when the room is square, it doesn't quite go into a vortex. Okay. What we did is we put smoke in there and by blowing smoke in there, um, you can kind of see really the, the air patterns. And we were actually treating uh, undersides of carpet with these uh, smoke formulations to prevent odor problems and uh, so on and so forth. What I did is I sent two people downstairs and I asked them to look at the ceiling and tell me if they see anything. And what we're doing upstairs is we're blowing the smoke around the room. Movers. At this point. Yeah, it's set up for top-down <laughs> drying. And we're circulating the air up above. And we came up with this idea of ducting the, uh, the, the dry air into the air mover. Okay. And we started doing this, you know, probably in, in the 70s. So what we have here, John, is we have carpet. We have foam pad. We had a plywood floor that was tongue and groove plywood. Yeah. Underneath that, we had a slat subfloor. Yeah. And one air mover, one air mover yeah. in the corner will, will, will force air all the way down. Okay. This is why it would try. Huh. Okay. And until you see it, you don't believe it. Once you see it, hopefully it'll change some, you know, win some hearts and minds and, and, and change some people's thinking. And this all goes back to that simple air mover, you know, and, uh, you know, Lloyd, we can get out of this if you want. You know, Lloyd was a visionary. He, uh, you know, in his mind, he could see tractor trailer trucks of drying equipment all over the United States, you know, responding to emergencies. I mean, he would talk about this stuff uh, all the time. I mean, he saw it. Uh, he really saw it in Technicolor. So if that whets your appetite to hear more uh, from Cliff Zlotnick, we actually had an episode on the Wild West of Restoration Industry History. <laughs> I think we ran close to two hours with that one with Pete's help, uh, Pete Consigli's help. But we had Ken Larson, we had John Downey, and Cliff Zlotnick, and Pete Consigli contributed, as did Ed Cross. Um, it's funny, we mentioned... Um, the reviewing your contracts at this time of year 
and thinking about the standards and uh, and what we talked with Cliff, what we just talked with Cliff about, kind of reviewing, assessing whether what you're doing is actually working. That's the whole point of documentation. The data is great, but if you don't know how to read or apply what the data is telling you, then um, you know you're not learning or evolving as a mitigation contractor as a scientist, a restoration scientist. So there's some pieces you can go back after. Listen to episode 60 of the Dojo podcast. Um, we started to talk about kind of from the 70s on some of the shenanigans. We mentioned uh, two articles that Cliff and Ken wrote um, that are kind of dive further into this idea of questioning what's being run down the pipeline as far as, um, you know, this is now what contractors should be doing when maybe we're not fixing something that we're, we may be fixing something that wasn't broken. Um, but also here's a fun clip from Ed Cross that intersects with the IICRC S500s and your contracts. Hey Ed, um, I just, I want people to know that I'm serious about what I do, so I've been talking to them a lot about how we train and follow the IICRC standard. With the standard of care. That's what I thought. Thanks for confirming that. Um, I'm thinking about putting it in our, our proposals and in our contracts. Don't, don't, don't put that in your contract. But I want people to know that we're serious. We, we do it right. With the standard of care, but do not write into your contract that you're going to perform the work according to IICRC standards. Are you sure? It's not going to help you sell any jobs. It's going to marry you to these thick documents. They're hundreds of pages long. And all the plaintiff's attorney has to do is point to one sentence in there that you didn't strictly comply with, and they'll be able to shout about, you know, breach of contract. Uh, that doesn't sound good. You don't need that kind of headache. What would you say you do here? It's infotainment. We will entertain you whilst we also inform you. An audio-visual experience like no other. You know, what Lloyd might say to the modern restorer? You know, I, I think what he, what he would say the, to the modern restorer is just because it's bigger and more complicated doesn't mean, uh, you know, doesn't mean it's better. I think simplicity, simplicity works. And, um, you know, I think before I would try a new fangled solution, I might be inclined to... Uh, you know, try the, the existing solutions. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems all these guys are looking for the that new piece of stainless steel equipment and so on and so forth and yeah. uh, a new expensive way to do it. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems to me there's so much um, generational memory that's lost. You know, we just don't remember it. You know, people don't remember it. It's yeah. kind of scary. I wholeheartedly agree. It's kind of scary um, understanding that the people that built it from the ground up might still have uh, valuable things to say. Um, we're talking to Cliff Zlotnick. If you're not aware, the March, I mention it frequently, the March 2007 copy of the Cleaning and Restoration magazine is this, I think, one of the penultimate articles, The Founding Fathers of Restoration written by my friend Pete Consigli, The Four Faces of Mount Restoration. So you got Marty King, you got Lloyd Weaver, 
Cliff Slotnick and Claude Blackburn. Um, thankfully, Claude and Cliff are still with us. Lloyd, who we've been talking about here, unfortunately has passed. Um, had an awesome opportunity to talk to his sons earlier last year, working that into an episode, uh, a piece that we're doing. Um, but we also have propertyrestorationhistory.com. Uh, we did a short piece on Marty King last year as well so there's information there if you've got tidbits of history love to hear them definitely encourage you to dig into our history because a lot of the issues we're facing now aren't that different from <laughs> you know uh 10 20 even 30 years ago are you not entertained you might say that we are annoying but helpful you can't say you weren't informed or entertained is this not why you were here the dojo podcast podcast we all should act like contractors. Say that the new guy coming in that really wants to try to learn to do things the right way. Do you have anything that might help that person to decipher when they're being fed a line of bull or, you know, what might be credible and helpful? I, I want to talk about two animals to answer your question. Okay. And uh, animal number one is a elephant. Animal number two is a honeybee. All right, if you take a baby elephant, okay, and you put a rope around his leg and you tie that rope to a tree, what is the elephant going to learn? To stay in a tight radius. Okay. You can actually remove the tree and still leave the rope on the elephant's leg and he will still stay there. Mm. Okay. He is kind of lost helplessness. Okay. If you take a honeybee and you put it in a jar, the honeybee will fly around for a while. It will try to get out. And then when it realizes it can't, it's going to feel helpless and it'll just not try to get out anymore. This is, I think a lot about complication, John. Mm. Um, people can be made to feel helpless. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these products. They give you this really sophisticated sales pitch. There's all kinds of numbers and there's equations and math. And like more, none of us are good at math. And people figure that they don't understand it. Therefore, the person who invented it is smarter than I am. Huh. You know, not necessarily true. Yeah. Ask them to explain to you simply how does it work. Imagine that I'm a six-year-old. Yeah. Explain it to me. Yeah. And if these people cannot explain it to a six-year-old, according to Albert Einstein, they don't understand it themselves. Yeah. And I think there's a tremendous amount of that, uh, you know, in the industry with these real complicated uh, solutions. And the simpler, the better oftentimes. Oh, yeah. No, ab absolutely. I, I think in our, in our industry, people look for the highest tech solution. Yeah. rather than the lowest tech solution. And yeah. I think we should look for the lowest tech solution that'll work first before we go to any higher tech yeah. solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just proved like what's one of the questions that gets often uh, asked oftentimes on, on, on social media is what equipment is essential for me to start? And 
people have these laundry lists and you've just shown you need a couple of air movers and, and maybe a dehu, right? It depends. Right, right. Well, really for your first job, you need one air mover and maybe a dehu, right? <laughs> right, right. We're going to call in a friend for his opinion on this. Uh, Jim Thompson, author of My Life is One Disaster After Another. What's your opinion on what you need to get a company started? Not back in the spray bottle, I'll tell you what. Said around the clock, around the country, first around the clock, around the block. Not back in the spray bottle. Knocked out the biggest of the biggest. Done, got paid, and got the hell out of it. Well, it depends, it depends where you're going to put the air mover. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. think, yeah. and you know, it, it, I mean, it, it just really, really worked. And, um, you know, some jobs would take, you know, in the old days, I mean, plaster and stuff like that, you know, would certainly take longer in those situations. You know, but I was always aggressive and Lloyd was aggressive. I mean, yeah. in terms of a dryer, you know, we would pull moldings and, you know, we'd pull yeah. baseboards and, and stuff like that. I mean, you know, when it was necessary, you know, yeah. when we had to, you know, we would drill holes and so yeah. on and so forth. But, um, you know, I think people spent, you know, this whole in-place drying thing, uh, I, I, I think was uh, really the worst thing that ever happened to the industry. I think a lot of people were led astray. I think a lot of money was wasted. You know, that, that to me, that still bothers me. I think given my preference, I'm st still floating carpets today. I think you just said input. So like they used to pull the carpet out. I actually, the first service master I worked at still had the racks, you know, where you'd hang the carpet and dry it in the shop. Right, right, right. Lloyd showed that in place drying, you could keep the carpet on site and dry it, right? And then um, it, would you, are you distinguishing between that? That would be in place drying versus this the top down drying which is more keep keep elements in place materials in place and well i think the top drown is not to float the carpet i think you know what lloyd did was float the carpet yeah and again we're doing this you know on on clean water losses you know where it's clean right. water uh within the house but i mean even you know for instance what what some people had the preference of doing is they would change the pad in, in, in many situations, they would just, they, they would, you know, the carpet was wet, they would extract it, they would peel back the wet carpet and struggle with it, because it's really heavy and still retains a lot of water and in, in, in the fiber and, and in the backing and then change, then replace the pad, or, or remove the pad. Yeah. It was really important to float the carpet with the pad in place for 24 hours. Then the pad's dry and the carpet's dry. And if you want to take the carpet out and throw it away, you can, but it's a whole lot easier. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard.